Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at BC Hydro's hunt for new electricity to meet British Columbia's insatiable power needs. Plus, we continue with our next million series as we look at the unprecedented growth south of the Fraser and how it will reshape Metro Vancouver the next two decades. Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward joins us. And Chilliwack residents call on the provincial government to speed up the expansion of Highway 1 as the city fights gridlock. Plus, we look at how Taylor Swift broke the record for most profitable concert film in history a week before its release. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Now, yesterday, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry and I discussed the fact drought and extreme temperatures reduced electricity production in BC last July to its lowest point of any July in at least 15 years. That's according to data from Stats Canada. BC generated 31% less electricity this last July than July of 2022. Uh, Along with Quebec, it was the main driver of a national year-over-year decline, which saw electricity production fall to its lowest level since at least 2016. The impact of climate change on electricity production is now a real issue. Now, this latest news comes as BC Hydro announced in June the province is going to need enough new power to run 270,000 homes starting as early as 2028. Now, the forecast from BC Hydro comes as the company plans its first call in 15 years for that large source of electricity. Joining me now to discuss uh, BC Hydro's call for new energy and looking at uh, energy sources, different types of energy sources here in BC is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry. Keith, welcome. Good to be here, Jazz. I'm glad you're doing this series because this population surge uh, reaches into so many aspects of society. You're going to have a field day, I think, all sorts of topics. But energy is a, is a huge one. Yeah, There's it, absolutely it, no question. Yeah, I wanted to continue our conversation from yesterday. First and foremost, uh, let's just touch on the, the, that news that we saw. Um, I think the Vancouver Sun was covering it. The fact that BC generated 31% less electricity uh, this last July compared to July of 2022. What is that telling us? Well, a couple of things. Um, you go back to what creates electricity for BC Hydro. We need it's all depends on water levels and and the dams. And when you've got low precipitation and low snow, snowpack levels, uh, those combine to basically lower the water levels, and that means there's less electro- electricity to be to be produced. Then you throw in the fact that there's increased demand. And it's, I won't want to use a cliche, perfect storm, but it's all coming together at the wrong time where you've got a huge popula- surge in population. So the number of people needing energy is going to be at an all-time high and growing very quickly. Climate change seems to be reducing our ability to produce energy along the traditional lines in BC, which is hydroelectric power. That's 98% of hydro's electricity is hydroelectric. Um, and so a surge in demand and a decrease in production means hydro has to look far and wide for new sources of electricity. And again, these have to be uh, BC government's mandated all new energy has to be clean. It can't be fossil fuel, can't be oil and gas. It has to be either hydroelectric or renewable, such as solar or wind. Um, Runner River is another form of hydro or geothermal, but in terms of cost competitiveness, it seems that wind is the one that seems to be the one that may be the one that hydro goes when they, they make their call next uh, next spring. And that power doesn't come online until 2028. Mm-hmm. And these targets the government set for is just two years after that, 2030. So time is of the essence. And I don't think a lot of people have got their heads around what a pressing issue this is, this real desperate need to create more electricity to meet energy demands 
at a time when producing electricity has never been more difficult. Why were we off? I mean, I, there's an urgency there, I would agree. But, you know, this is a conversation perhaps, uh, you know, we should should have been having in 2015 or 2010. Why now? Like, what, is it just we've had, because of immigration levels that we've all of a sudden say, oh, we're call now 270,000 new homes. We want to start as early as 2028 and be ready to go by 2030, as you said. Why the urgency now? Did we just not gauge the growth? Well, I don't. Yeah, I think a lot of people mis misgauge the growth. I don't think a lot of people saw coming a few years ago that our population would increase by almost ten percent, half a you know billion people, half a million people in um, five hundred million people in the space of a, sh- a short period of time, and that number will continue to grow with record immigration levels. You know, one hundred fifty thousand people a year coming into BC. That number will slow a bit, according to the government's later uh, latest quarterly financial reports, about a hundred thousand people. But that's a net increase, and they're all going. Going into, and you know, I've talked about this before. There's three areas of BC where people are moving. Um, Metro Vancouver, by far, is the main uh, destination point for new immigrants. The capital region over here in Victoria is the second. Kelowna and the Okanagan is third. It's not as if people are moving en masse into Kamloops or Fort St. John or Cranbrook. They're all moving into these three areas. And then you extrapolate the pressures that puts on those three areas. It's not just housing. It's not just infrastructure, but it's also energy uh, demand. And um, that's where, again, I don't think a lot of people foresaw this coming to the degree we're seeing it now. But you can always agree there should have been better planning years ago. But I'll tell you, the government's targets are set at 2030. And that's only seven years away. And you've got this power call going out next year that hopefully comes back with clean power, probably most of it solar, wind power. Um, but then we get into a situation we never really had in BC, which Alberta is going through, where part of the reason they hit the pause button mm-hmm. on renewable projects such as solar and wind is literally communities did not like these big projects that are quite, you know, they're eyesores. Anybody who's been around a wind project knows that's just not a quiet little project. It's a big thing. And they don't like them in their communities. So there's a bit of a pushback there. We haven't ever experienced that in BC. We don't have a lot of wind farms, and we're we're really in infancy. So we'll see if there's pushback on some of these renewable energy projects. I mean, there was pushback on Site C Dam, obviously, but that's that sailed through. There was pushback on other dams and some smaller run of the river projects. But if we're talking some big wind projects, which likes which we haven't seen before, it'll be interesting to see where the public's at. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking about a call for more power by BC Hydro, which came out in June. Uh, so the province uh, can generate enough energy to run 270,000 homes as early as 2028. This all comes as a new report out from, a new data actually from Stats Canada, which says that BC generated 31% less electricity this last July than July of 2022, along with Quebec. that uh, was the main driver of a national year-over-year decline which saw electricity production fall to its lowest level since at least 2016. So lots to talk about in regards to energy and our energy future here in British Columbia. What do you think uh, should be our energy future in regards to, is should it still be hydroelectric power? It serves us well, it's serving us well, uh, but we have had another million people moving here in Metro Vancouver alone uh, by 2050. Uh, let's go to the open line. Let's go to Steve in Delta. Hi, Steve. Hey, guys. I, I hate always pounding on the government, but it's typically asinine government directives. You know, they don't want us to have gas stoves or gas furnaces. They all want electric. So how does that work? Take away 50% and you got to get 50% more uh, hydroelectricity. How does that work? I mean, gas is pretty clean compared to uh, we used to have oil or coal or wood. 
but we still export. Like I live by Roberts Bank. There's 80 billion tons of coal that we're shipping out. So the government is asking us to suffer and pay more, and then we don't have a solution because we don't have enough electricity, but we can't use gas, so we need more electricity. So do you, do you get the gist here? There's a lot of philosophical things going on that make no bloody sense. And quite frankly, you know, I know I want my kids to live in a clean world, but, you know, making everybody in B.C. suffer yeah. because, you know, third world countries burn wood still, we we, we got to do it slowly. We can't just say, okay, all gas has to go in three years. Well, electricity is going down by 30%. Yeah, Steve, well, thank we you. We need 100% more. I got yeah. you, We got your point. Wow. I mean, this is a good point. I mean, it took, it took, I think, oil 75 years to surpass coal as the major energy source in this world. Yeah, it's usually 100-year cycles Yeah, these change of energy. It doesn't happen overnight. And I've long been skeptical of governments going to these international con- conferences and setting these targets for, for uh, emission targets and such. And it's all noble to get there. But then as we increasingly miss these targets, or we get closer and closer to the year these targets are supposed to be reached, and there's no evidence we're reaching those targets, I think governments have less political capital to push these targets on its citizenry without showing that something's happening as a result of the citizenry tightening their belts or paying more for this or not being able to buy this in order to achieve these targets, which prove to be either unattainable or certainly not attainable on the time frame the governments have been pushing. And you see now, start to see politicians. I had a piece a couple of weeks ago questioning, are politicians losing their nerve when it comes to fighting climate change? And so you've got the United Kingdom prime minister basically abandoning some very aggressive targets there of uh, meeting uh, emission targets and curtailing uh, because the polls show that the electorate is not there with him and he faces an election sooner than later. So you've got the Conservative Party in in the United Kingdom, sort of walking away from these lofty uh, emission targets. You've got Pierre Poliev, you've seen his ads on on TV, walking away from the carbon tax, which is just almost in its infancy nationally. We've had a carbon tax in B.C. since, like, 2006, so we're used to it. Our carbon tax is far greater than other provinces pay. You could argue we're sort of getting used to it, but I think it's just a matter of time in B.C., whether one or more of the parties say, you know what, we're not going to abandon the carbon tax, but maybe we're not going to keep increasing it. Well, I, I, I think it you're right. It used to be revenue neutral, and now it's not. It's not, and it's going to be going up aggressively until 2030, and I think the rubber hits the road pretty quick. You're hearing so much of it on this show and many other of our programs here. And as it goes up aggressively every single year, and more and more people educate themselves around it, I just think, I just, I don't see them if going... It was, at, if it was tied to evidence that it was actually bringing down emissions, yeah. then I think people might be a little more in line with it. But after 15 years or so, if there's no evidence it's doing what it's supposed to do at a time when it's taking more money out of your pocket, I think it's less supportable for a government to keep pushing it. That's why I think you're going to see governments walk away from stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go to Dennis and Surrey. Hi, Dennis. Uh, hi, how are you guys today? We're good. What's on uh, your mind? What they, what the, the government, what they should be doing is when they do seismic upgrades to schools, hospitals and that it should all include solar and some of the new projects that they're building maybe it it won't make it like the real inexpensive places to rent or that but it should include a a solar in all new buildings dennis thanks for your call i mean that's not a bad idea right keith i mean at the end of the day we should be if you're going to push that we should be looking at solar in some cases especially with the amount of building that we're doing when it comes to hospitals and schools 
Well, you want solar where the sun shines, and not everywhere in BC has the same amount of sunlight or, or sunshine that comes yeah. through. So that's one of the knocks against renewable power, which is less and less of a knock. You know, the wind doesn't, if the wind's not blowing, you're not getting energy. If the sun's not shining, you're not getting energy. That's less and less true as technology improves, and you can store some of this. But, you know, not a bad idea on paper to require solar panels and new construction. And maybe we'll get there. And I think we are inching towards things like that because certainly the old way of just saying we're going to heat homes and schools and buildings with fossil fuels is kind of a dead in the, dead in the water. But the challenge on the other side is what do you replace it with and how quickly can you replace it? And that's the whole argument right now in the debate. Can we actually meet these targets in a timely fashion? And at a time when climate change is really pushing on one side, yeah. can you push on the other side to meet those challenges presented by you know a very radically shifting climate? Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Keith, thank you. All right, anytime. Last night, singer Taylor Swift said the documentary film from her um, Billion Dollar Era's concert tour will offer one-day early access showings in the U.S. and Canada. Due to unprecedented demand, producers opened up early access showings of the Era's tour concert film today in America and Canada, as Ms. Swift said they would. Movie houses are also adding additional showtimes Friday and throughout the weekend. Now, the concert film, which brings the epic three-hour show to its widest audience yet, is already the highest-grossing in history. Now, before the added showtimes, the era's tour was projected to collect the staggering $100 million to $125 million in domestic box office, uh, in, in its domestic box office debuts, debuts that would be America and Canada. The movie is also um, expected to generate another $30 million to $50 million internationally, bringing in its estimated global debut to $150 to $175 million. Now, Swiss concert movies already surpassed the entire run of the genre's former record holder, which was 2011's Justin Bieber concert film, Never Say Never, which generated $99 million. So last night, Miss Swift attended the concert movie premiere in Los Angeles. Take a listen. Call it a Swifty Swarm. Diehard Taylor Swift fans flooding the Grove in LA's Fairfax district for a glimpse at the superstar performer. People were like, it's top secret, you can't tell anybody. It was all over TikTok and everything. It was supposed to be kept under wraps until even more word spread this morning the mall was abruptly closed. Nearby roads were blocked off and security was tight. Then Sky 5 spotted the red carpet for the world premiere of the much-anticipated film Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. I could show you incredible things. She rented out the whole Grove for, for her fans. The invitation-only event is being held at the Grove's 14-screen movie theater. Those with an invite were told to show up at 2 p.m. Those lucky enough to score an invite were over the moon. I was invited by Spotify as a top fan. I was sh- shocked as anything, shocked. Even those unable to attend the premiere were still swooning over Swift. We hope Taylor Swift watches KCLA, and if she does, and she's watching this story, what would you like to say to her? Taylor, thank you for uh, sharing your music with the world, because uh, it's touched so many people for good reason. Imagine shutting down an entire shopping mall just for your fans. So somebody who can do it, it would be Taylor Swift. Well, joining me now to talk about this cultural moment is Rick Forchuk, TV Week magazine columnist and a CKNW contributor. Uh, good afternoon, Rick. Good afternoon, Jazz. Now, are you going to be going to the to watch the concert movie over the weekend? Of course. <laughs> how, how how could I not? <laughs> uh, are you amazed at just the uh, the amount of tickets that have been been pre sold here? A hundred million dollars in pre sales. I am amazed. I, I'm amazed at that, 
And I'm uh, amazed at the creativity that went into the building of this event. And I might be stretching it a little bit, but if you just think back uh, less than a year ago, Taylor Swift was extremely upset with the people at Ticketmaster because of the way her concert tickets were being treated and because of the way her fans were being treated. And she was very, very vocal about the fact that there needs to be a better way to do this. Well, I think she's just found a better way, and it's a better way for the motion theater, motion picture business, the theaters too, and it's a better way for the fans because uh, for those who saw the preview yesterday, they are just stunned at the beauty of this thing and how spectacular it is. And it's not in any way a documentary. It is just the concert, no more and no less. And because the quality of the uh, production is so high, you can see every sequin on her dress, uh, every single costume change allows you to see the fact that her microphone changes color with each costume, Mm -hmm. and you can see the writing on her guitar. You can see her name written on her guitar. You can read the manufacturer's info on her guitar. It's that crisp and that's clear. And I think this is a new way to produce concerts. Um, that's not to say that these artists can't go out on the road and make a bunch of money, but this is great because it doesn't matter what seat you have in that theater. You have the best seat in the house, Jazz. Yeah, no, that, absolutely. And and the, and originally it was the, the concert film was only supposed to open in the U.S. and Canada, but now it'll be in 8,500 cinemas across 100 countries. What I also found interesting, I was reading a Variety magazine, which is sort of a Bible for for those uh, who follow the business of Hollywood. Now, generally, you would go to the studios who would then make a deal with the movie theaters to to distribute this movie. Um, what, um, To my understanding, what uh, Ms. Swift and her camp have done is they went straight to the movie theaters, cut a deal, and there'll be a small distribution fee. But at the end of the day, uh, they just ignored the studios, and of all the tickets sold, Ms. Swift will receive 53% of all tickets sold or the dollars generated. So by this weekend, she will have made another $60 million. Well, exactly. And and uh, that is why I'm saying that uh, she has, I think, essentially carved out a whole new way for the concert business. There'll still be concerts, but mm-hmm. this, this is special. And she's done it not only as an artist, but as a business person. And clearly she has people behind her that give her advice and assistance, but she is a smart lady. Uh, she has really done her homework here. And this is really an outstanding kind of opportunity. Uh, these showings are in the evening, so it's like you're going to a concert. And as you mentioned off the top, Jazz, they're uh, uh, starting this evening. They were supposed to start tomorrow, but they will be doing uh, doing shows tonight. And right throughout the weekend, they're adding additional shows. And it won't be enough because people won't be able to get tickets. But um, those who do are going to get their money's worth and then some. And I think this is only the beginning of seeing this kind of creativity mm-hmm. in terms of blending the live concert genre and the movie theater business. Well, they're saying that uh, certainly this film has the potential to generate 200 to $250 million in revenue. Uh, that puts it above... Um, Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible, the last one, which generated $174 million. Uh, Indiana Jones and Dial of Destiny was $174 million. And Fast X, uh, the Fast and Furious franchise, made $145 million. So this easily, easily, if, if the numbers hold, which many expect to do just because of the Swifties out there, uh, this will easily be one of the top 10 uh, most profitable movies, certainly the revenue-generating side, uh, of the year. And, and, and it does speak to, as you say, 
um, you know, something that she's created, created on her own, significantly beating the last one, which is Justin Bieber's concert film. Um, moving forward, I guess technology is driving this as well. I mean, the quality of the cameras, as you said, the production values are phenomenal. So watching at the theater gives you this amazing experience. Yes, and uh, the uh, the word in the street is, see this on the biggest screen you can get. Uh, around town here, the Cineplex theaters uh, in their IMAX um, facilities have got this movie, and that's a big screen. That's a really big screen. Uh, but even the uh, the AVX in most of the Cinemax theaters, uh, that's a big screen as well. Big screen, big sound, big difference. That's the way to see this. And it's smart. It's different. It's unusual. And when you roll this revenue from this in to her world tour that she's partway through, Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at a billion dollars in the till by the time this is all done. A billion dollars for one (laughs) artist's concert. Hard to imagine. Absolutely. Rick, thank you for your time today. You bet. Thanks a lot, Jazz. You may recall yesterday, Mayor Ken Sim, along with uh, his council colleagues, ABC council colleagues, held a a press conference where um, uh, Mr. Sim, along with his colleagues, said that they're pushing to have 26 areas of the city pre-zoned to allow and accelerate the construction of all forms of housing, uh, as uh, as well as uh, sort of speeding up construction in the so-called villages. He wants to explore opportunities to increase housing density by rezoning land, which he says is undeveloped around sky train stations. Um, there's also reviewing the city's shadow impact criteria. There's quite a few of the uh, seven in total in regards to the issues he wishes to focus on. He says all of them together will hopefully speed up the building of homes uh, in Vancouver. Take a listen to his comments. The time frame is as quick as possible, and it's, you know, it, we're not going to give a number on units. The, the role of the city of Vancouver is to create an environment where we can build more housing of all types as quickly as possible. So the targets we would be talking about is how do we actually reduce, reduce times to process permits and to allow people to uh, build quicker. Uh, that was yesterday. That was Mayor Ken Sim speaking on the issue. Well, joining me now is Adrienne Carr. She's the uh, Vancouver City Council with the Green Party. Uh, many people have said, you know, uh, uh, you know, or at least their party has said, ABC has said it's a bold plan. Others have said it's rehashed old ideas. Your thoughts on, first and foremost, uh, Adrienne, welcome to the show, and your thoughts and ideas on just what Mr. Sim was saying. Do you think it's going to accomplish what is needed in this city, which is build more houses? Oh, we, well, let's face it. We all agree with the goal. We yeah. need to build more houses. Um, you got to get more specific than that, though. What we really need is more affordable housing. Mm-hmm. That's not what I saw emphasized in the plan, so that's that's a problem for me. Um, some of the stuff is rehashed. The, the 26 neighborhood centers, those are part of uh, what we have already done in the Vancouver plan, so they're sort of moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, it, you know, it, it's often a struggle to think about those SkyTrain stations where there's undevelopment, uh, not, not enough development for sure. And um, staff, though, have said to us there's big problems related to the ground conditions, the soils, the lack of sewage, the drainage of those lands. So some of them are not developed for sort of pretty major practical reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a lot of money to uh, to uh, ensure that those places are safe. So some of it's rehashed. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're on that track. We have been bringing down the permit times mm-hmm. um, and it could be done more. And that and that's what we are planning to do. Um but the big question, do we need more housing? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it any kind of housing? 
I'd say, no, let's put the emphasis on affordability. So when you say put the emphasis on affordability, what would you focus on? I mean, we keep hearing about the missing middle, two and three bedroom condos and townhomes. Um, what what would you do when it comes to, A, addressing that missing middle? And most importantly, how do you make it affordable? Well, we just voted in council on addressing the missing middle. We just rezoned the whole city, all our single-family zoned areas, our two-family zoned areas, everything zoned residential, can now have up to four units, up to six units if there's affordability thrown in, and up to eight even on larger lots um, if it's all rental and affordable. So, um, you know, we've already made a huge move. That's... That's major. Mm-hmm. Um, so one step taken. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have to do, though, is is make sure that we um, bring in the federal and the provincial governments because they're the ones with the bucks. They're mm-hmm. the ones that can actually af- provide the subsidies needed for affordability. We can ask something of developers, and we already do. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a larger development, you've got to put in you know, 20% of, of the housing at below market rates, 30% below market. Um, so that is going along at pace. But to get much deeper affordability, we have to look to the senior governments for that support. Senior levels of government. Do you think there's going to be much uptake on the four, six uh, units per a lot? Uh, Because some would argue, look, there's issues of practical issues around sewage and piping, all those types of things. There's the issues of parking as well. And some have said that policy alone may just lead to, you know, an uplift in regards to the cost of that land, just knowing you can actually potentially do that. Do you think there's going to be much uptake in regards to just those people actually come in and say, look, we're going to build those four and six units on, on a single family lot? You know, it was a bit of a shock when we actually dealt with that at the council table. Staff said, look, we've got hundreds of people in the waiting for this. Um, so, uh, you know... You mean developers wanting to do this? Exactly, yeah. And, you know, the developers... Or families. I mean, one of the reasons I voted for it is I got convinced by people who said, look, Adrian, you know, we got three kids. Um, we have a single family home. Uh, we can't let one of our kids have it because we could never have equity for the other two kids. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it's not stratifiable at this point. So we allowed that to be stratified. So those families could, sub, you know, redevelop their lot. Each kid could get, you know, one unit on mm-hmm. it. There could be maybe a couple more for rental units that they could, you know, mortgage helpers. Um, so, I mean, that for me, that was a compelling reason to say yes mm-hmm. to that that policy. Um, we've got a lot, as I say, of people in the waiting, staff have said. Um, so I'm hopeful that you're going to get some of that missing middle housing built fairly quickly mm-hmm. by people. We are speaking to Adrienne Carr. She is Vancouver City Councilor for the Green Party. We were talking about uh, the announcement yesterday by Ken Sim, uh, a a housing plan that was announced that uh, would focus on greater density around SkyTrain stations. Uh, 26 areas of the city would be pre-zoned to allow and accelerate construction of all forms of housing. Uh, Think these uh, local villages, 26 villages, I think, as they had called it. A lot of other ideas as well. They're reviewing the city's shadow impact or view cones as well. Uh, and so there's lots to talk about, uh, but is it going to be affordable housing, as Adrian Carr said, or is it just going to be housing? And that's the difference. Do call us on the open line. I'd love to hear from you as well in regards to what you would like to see. Let's go to, uh, I believe that is uh, Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Hey, hey, Jazz. I noticed that you asked Mrs. Carr, what's affordable housing? And, of course, she dances all around that. Typical, typical left-wing politician. So I, my question, what is affordable housing? 700000 800,000, 900,000. My point, Jez, very simple point. 
there is no such thing as affordable housing. All the right. price of materials, supplies, everything, you know that. Yeah. Dev, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, I think it's a good question. Like, what how what is affordable today? I mean, I think you're looking at average prices around 1.2 million for the region, um, but that doesn't mean much in the west side of Vancouver or even East Vancouver. What, in your mind, would be affordable? Well. Uh, it's not even in my mind. There's a standard definition of affordability, and that is a, a household should not be paying more than 30% of its income on rent or on housing. Um, so you have to look at the average income. I think the median income is about 80000 uh, oh. in in the lower mainland, uh, yeah. right? Roughly around there, 77000 80000 So, I mean, we're already at a one-bedroom at $3,000 a month, potentially in some neighborhoods, yeah. less in others, yeah. right? Uh, so we're already above that. So how do you get that? It'll yeah, be yeah, on- yeah. Because I mean, that's that turns out to be about two thousand a month, for an eighty thousand. You know, so mm-hmm. so so how do you get that? The market's not going to deliver it right now. It just isn't. The costs are too high in development. The land costs are too high in the city. Yeah. Um. So you know that's where you have to look at senior governments and everywhere around the world. Yeah. Where there is affordable housing that meets those kind of income criteria. The senior governments have... So what would that senior government do? Provide funding to subsidize the building of those uh, yeah, help apartments? Out with yeah. I mean, that's what that's what happened in the 70s uh, in Canada when this, the uh, federal government uh, uh, developed a lot of uh, co-op housing. Yeah, you see that city. around uh, Oak as well, a lot of the three-story three apartment blocks yeah. that, uh, that that were getting built yeah. in a, under the, then. I think it was almost 25% of all the housing at one point was, to a certain degree, the federal government was involved in. Yeah. And they did walk away from from it in the, in the, in the late that's 80s. That's a tragedy. Yeah, well, we're paying for that. I mean, that's how we got here. Right? We kind of sleepwalked into this. It's taken literally decades, and we have to remind ourselves, you can't just fix it in one election cycle or probably two, and it's mm. going to take some time, and that's unfortunate. Uh, let's go to Trevor in Vancouver. Hi, Trevor. Hey, Jeff. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I think he's Sam, doing a good job. I think, you know, what he said about creating an environment, that's what city council job is and what's in low-income housing or whatever affordable housing is going to have to come from from the uh, the federal government. But, you know, guys, you take runs at Sim all the time, you criticize him, but you actually look at his platform going into the last election. He's accomplished both of them, whether it's the DPD, the Stanley Park bike lane, mm-hmm. the tent encampment downtown. He's pretty much knocked it out of the park. And I, so I, I just don't know where all the criticism from you is coming from. What did you expect? I mean, you look at the ABC, they ran the slate car, fry, and boil. They got the lowest vote. Clearly, if, if ABC ran uh, 10 people, yep. none of them would be employed right now well, with the city of Vancouver. I don't think, yeah, thank you for your call. I, I don't think I've been overly critical of the mayor, but I have been critical on certain issues, raising of fees and those types of things. Uh, but my job is to hold them to account. And, and you know, Ken Sim is going to be on the show next week. We're going to bring him in once a month, and he's agreed to it, take calls from you as well. Uh, but I think it's important to continue to challenge and, and push elected officials. That's what I do. But you're right. I mean, they've not brought in all the police officers that they said they're going to, and they're, they're heading that in that direction, mental health uh, nurses as well, but they have challenges in, in, in hiring just because of Surrey and Surrey hiring, Surrey's hiring and the challenges there. Um, but look, he's brought the big promises. He's he's moving towards getting that done, and I don't deny that. And then not one council is going to fix something, and all three levels of government have to work together. I, I agree with you. The challenge is... What is affordable and how do we get families back in Vancouver again when the median income is $80,000 a year for an individual? Um, in regards to the um, final question to you, in regards to the um, 
villages themselves. This would be Carisdale, Dunbar, which is already there, but there'd be greater density built around these communities. Correct. Yeah, that's right. And and they're spread all through the city. We've got the all the, we've got neighborhoods yeah. in the city, and not all of them have got density in terms of a core area, um, but most of them, and not not quite all, but most of them have a little shopping um, strip, and the village areas are around those shopping areas. So, I, um, do you think the blue bloods of Carisdale would want uh, greater density? Already. <laughs> Imagine you getting a few calls yeah, no, from I folks. Th- I think that they're. I think people are really worried about the emptying out of some of those neighborhoods, the That's closure true. of schools because yeah. there's no kids. Um, yeah, I, I think I think we need to keep the those all our neighborhoods vibrant. Yeah, Adrian, thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, let's talk about Highway One. I was uh, out in the uh, at the Abbotsford Chilliwack border this uh, last weekend, and uh, even on a weekend. Boy, that highway was incredibly busy, and I don't think that's a shock to anybody out in the Fraser Valley, whether in Abbotsford or Chilliwack or Langley. Uh, there's just a tremendous amount of people moving into those areas. We just had Eric Woodward on during the four o'clock hour, the mayor of Lang- uh, the mayor of uh, the township of Langley, talking about the incredible growth. In fact, we're expecting another four hundred thousand plus people moving out to, to Langley and uh, Langley City, Langley Township, and Surrey in the next twenty-five years. And, and you can expect, uh, you know, if you had Abbotsford and Chilliwack, significant amount of people. So. Highway 1 plays an important role for those communities. And now recently, the Ministry of Transportation Infrastructure gave an update on Highway 1's expansion to uh, Chilliwack uh, elected officials. Uh, For now, we are told the province is working on widening the section of Highway 1 from 216th to 264th Street. And the next phase is going to be tackling 264th Street to Mount Lehman Road. But they haven't given a timeline to that yet. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the widening of Highway 1 and particularly the impact on Chilliwack. We're joined now by Chris Clute, who's a Chilliwack City Councillor. Mr. Clute, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So can you walk me through what an average day, a weekday looks like uh, in Chilliwack when it comes to uh, Highway 1? Well, if you're planning on going anywhere, give yourself lots of time. Uh, Highway 1 is a, a corridor that has not seen any significant improvements since it was built in the 19. 19- uh, late 1950s, uh, and I think it opened 1960. So, you know, we're talking um, we're talking about almost 65 years of, of a highway uh, that has had very little improvement. Um, it's backlogged all the time. People are frustrated. Your uh, listeners right now may be sitting in traffic, even though it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, it's increasingly uh, frustrating that uh, we seem to not uh, be getting our fair share of infrastructure improvements uh, in the Fraser Valley, as you mentioned, the growth in, in the eastern Fraser Valley, Abbotsford and Chilliwack. Um, Chilliwack is the second fastest growing city in the country, and we're annually growing by 2%. And uh, we don't have the uh, liberty to jump on a commuter rail train, even though the uh, provincial government announced it a couple budgets back that uh, they alluded to uh, light rail service into the Fraser Valley. Looks good on paper. Nothing mm-hmm. ever happened. So not overly confident that's even going to be a reality in my lifetime. Um, but uh, we certainly need uh, some much-needed improvements on Highway 1. So in regards to the update that was given to you by provincial officials and the Ministry of Transportation Infrastructure, uh, what did they tell you? Well, they, they came, and we appreciate the update. Um, you know, the after the atmospheric rivers in November of 2021, they uh, did uh, change the plan somewhat. It originally was going to go to Watkin Road, and now uh, the following phases are in planning are right up to uh, Yale Road West, so the Vetter Canal in the city of Chilliwack boundary. 
that's good news. Um, but like I say, we're we're <laughs> we're probably 25 years too late. Um, so they might even need to consider four lanes at this point. Um, but the reality is, um, we are uh, severely lacking in the Fraser Valley with respect to Highway One, which is is actually quite a dangerous highway. Mm-hmm. Now, as I was saying, the province is widening the section of Highway Highway One from Two Sixteenth to Sixty Fourth Street. That would put it in uh, that would be in Langley, Langley Alder Grove, that area, and then, then of course Two Sixty Fourth Street will be the next phase to Mount Lehman Road, which takes you into Abbotsford. Uh, uh, and there isn't a, a firm timeline on that yet to my understanding. Uh, so right now, is there anything they can do to alleviate some of those challenges in Chilliwack, perhaps uh, interchanges that may cause bottlenecks in Abbotsford? I don't know. Is there anything they can provide beyond just obviously doing what you're asking for, which is widening the highway? Is there anything else they can do at this point? Well, and, I, and thanks for that question. I, I think I, I made the point. I'm also a director on the Fraser Valley Regional District. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the same presentation uh, the week earlier before uh, this week's presentation to City Council in Chilliwack. Um, you know, I, uh, I made the points that we have many um, options in my mind um, to do some quick wins for in the meantime. And whether that means commercial traffic needs to be restricted to uh, the right lane from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., for instance, or whether that means, um, you know, they, the provincial government then managed to find $25 million sitting around for a variable speed corridor, which is a complete waste of money. Um, it, it's, it's ineffective. Um, I was driving on a bright, sunny day um, this summer, and the, the, the billboard said dense fog ahead. Well, com- you know, that's not helpful. Uh, people, the warning lights are flashing, and people are driving slow, um, are on ramps. You know, in my mind, I think I think what would a twenty-five million have bought for on ramps? And I'll use two sixty-fourth because a lot of your listeners are really familiar with that interchange. Mm-hmm. But there's other interchanges like Watkin and and some of these other interchanges where the on ramps are way too short. The people are going onto the freeway are going sixty or seventy kilometers an hour. That's mm-hmm. just congesting everything behind you. Those on ramps need to be triple the length, and the people on them need to be going the, the speed of the highway as soon as they merge on. Um, in my mind, I think that's something that can be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, sooner than later, um, and and again, I think the commercial truck traffic. Um, there needs to be some enforcement with respect to uh, allowing them to pass uh, during the busy times. Because right now, if we had three lanes, that would be great. Um, but we're, we don't have that, and uh, we need to ensure that people have the ability to move freely. And, and right now, that highway is nothing more than stop and go. And you just mentioned it earlier in your intro mm-hmm. on a weekend. Uh, it's crazy, you know, like at a ten o'clock on a. Sunday morning, for instance, if you're heading eastbound, it's not uncommon to be going 20 or 30 kilometers an hour, if not coming to a straight stop. And, and there might not be nothing happening. There might be dump trucks that are merging onto the freeway um, by the coal road exit. But anyway, that's my rant. And you're allowed to rant because uh, it's your, uh, your um, community, your residents who are stuck. That's a lot of wasted time that they could be spending on their business, their families, and a lot of other things. It's wasted, um, you know, it's just wasted energy that uh, could be much more, used much more in a productive way. Um, now, look, we've had the NDP in power in the 1990s, BC Liberals for 16 years, and now an NDP government. Um, what is the failing here? I mean, was it a question of just a, these governments not moving quick enough? Do you think it was a lack of 
perhaps collectively lobbying government as Abbotsford and Chilliwack and even Langley and say, get this done, folks. We're voting you folks in. You better get uh, get something done here. And this is the number one issue. It reigns the number one issue for all these communities. I mean, where do you think is it? Was it just a case of negligence? It was a question of not lobbying together. What do you think is what, what got us here, I guess, at the end of the day? Well, you know, I think all the, the Fraser Valley councils have been making this case uh, continuously. Uh, as a director on the Fraser Valley Regional District, this is our number one critical priority is the backbone of the Fraser Valley as Highway 1, mm-hmm. and it's severely uh, lacking in many regards. Now, uh, good question. Um, I, I remember I was at a Chilliwack Chamber of Commerce luncheon in, in 2019 mm-hmm. uh, before covid and the Minister of Infrastructure, Federal Minister of Infrastructure at the time was uh, Francois-Philippe Champion. Mm-hmm. And he was late to the, the chamber lunch. And my first question to him was, and we're stuck in traffic, which he was. Um, but he made it really clear the funding is available from the federal level. The money is there. It is up to the province to prioritize. And at this point, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that it is top priority for, for our province today because many of the MLAs in the Fraser Valley are sitting in government, and if they can't make it happen now, mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll ever see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, this province, whatever government's in power, the, one of the things you never forget, it's all blacktop politics. Is that you, you build roads and bridges and highways, and generally you get reelected. So it's not like uh, it, it, it's, uh, it doesn't work for elected officials. In fact, it does. And number one, and number two, the, the area needs it, and, uh, and it's and, and that's unfortunate. I'm just curious. We were just talking to Eric Woodward, as they say, and with the SkyTrain going into Langley City, I was talking to him about you know SkyTrain one day perhaps going up 200s all the way up to 200 in the highway. Do you ever see a time where SkyTrain, if it gets up to 200 in the highway, it would be pushed all the way down the freeway, or do you just don't expect anything like that in your lifetime? I don't expect anything like that in my lifetime. Um, you know, it, it's incredibly expensive to do uh, per kilometer of SkyTrain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if it if it works its way to Abbotsford in my lifetime, I'll be really surprised. Um, but again, a, a region, the Fraser Valley Regional District is a region of over 325,000 people. That's a lot of people. And growing at 2% per year, it's going to continue to grow. The federal government has extreme high targets for immigration, for skilled workers. That's great. Um, but we're short of housing. We're short of infrastructure. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that the provincial government will expedite this project sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think of the Coquihalla, uh, you know, that was built. And I know it was a, a highway with no traffic and it was a brand new road. But that was built, I believe, in 20 months. Yeah. Like, what? why is this taking so long? We have been talking about this for... 20 plus years. It should have been built under a previous government. It hasn't been built. So let's get this thing done. Uh, I, uh, I understand. I, I can hear the frustration and it's legitimate and, uh, and we're hoping to amplify it as much as possible. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.